This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. I'll admit that I was actually pretty ambivalent about the prospect of Jon Stewart returning to The Daily Show because honestly, I kind of expected him to disappoint me. I mean, after seeing so many people who I previously looked up to disappoint me and do this heel turn and become a hack or just shift political ideologies. I just felt like, man, I'm not ready for I'm not ready for Jon Stewart to disappoint me like that. But thankfully, I was wrong. And after watching the first episode, I can confidently say that this is the same show as it was in the 2000s and the 2010s. It's the same show that I enjoyed as a young man. And Jon Stewart didn't miss a beat. Now, I was really relieved to see that because Jon Stewart had such a significant influence on my own political development that if he did some sort of a change or heel turn or became more hacky, I would just feel really disappointed by that. I mean, I feel like that was the direction that Trevor Noah took the show in, honestly. I gave it a try, but tapped out pretty quickly because I felt like he was just a more funny version of MSNBC, which is not what I was looking for. I wanted objective political commentary, and Trevor Noah was just a hack. For example, when leftists criticized Obama for taking money from Wall Street for speeches, Noah's response was basically, you know what, it's fine, make that money, Obama, as if there was nothing inherently wrong with politicians cashing in and chumming it up with donors who got them elected after they refused to regulate them while in office. I mean, it's elitist, it's hacky, and Noah just took the show in a direction where he was more deferential to power at a time when the country was in populist mode. And that's why I think the show wasn't as successful as Jon Stewart also. I mean, those are really big shoes to fill. But that's why, for me at least, Trevor Noah just wasn't it. But what made Jon Stewart so effective in the first place is his willingness to poke fun at both sides, the entirety of the political establishment, all elites. That's not to say that he created this false equivalence between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to policy. But when Democrats embarrass themselves with political gaffes or by doing something stupid, by capitulating to Republicans, he wasn't afraid to criticize them for it. He didn't treat politics as a team sport. He was objective and didn't pull any punches. And that's what made him such an outstanding political commentator. And in 2024, he's still doing the same thing, which has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, actually, because he said what everyone was thinking that you're, I guess, not supposed to say. He said both presidential candidates are really old, which is just objectively true. And he also stated that questions about the cognitive capacity of both Biden and Trump are legitimate. And he's not saying this to make it seem as if both candidates are equally bad. But what he's saying is that when the stakes are so high, when we have someone like Biden who's too old and out of touch to save us from Trump, that's that's pretty bad. We're in a pretty bad predicament. Or as he put it, he said, when the barbarians are at the gate, you want Conan, not the chocolate chip cookie guy. And he phrased it that way because he made fun of Biden for this TikTok. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I understand she makes great chocolate chip cookies. And Stewart's response to that was basically, look, fire everyone because in their attempts to make biden seem more hip and relatable and young by posting on tiktok they somehow made him look even more old and out of touch but john stewart didn't just make fun of biden for his cognitive decline he gave trump the same exact treatment and that's a good thing because as sean put it liberals mad at john stewart for doing a trump and biden are both really old and confused bit don't realize how much that equation favors biden he continues we can all see biden's brain is mush you should be thankful for comparisons to trump on that front, even with how incoherent he is himself. And that's exactly right. But since Stewart's been gone, Americans have become a lot more tribalistic. And we've all kind of become insulated in our own little political bubbles. And whenever that bubble is penetrated, we get outraged. You know, admitting the obvious and criticizing a member of the same team apparently is a huge no-no in this day and age. And that was basically the response to uh, John Stewart. So let me show you what I mean by that. Rolling Stone's Alan Sepinwall asks, is John Stewart still the right person to host The Daily Show? The comedy vet makes his return to the desk he left in 2015 this evening, but his both sides are equally bad approach may not translate to 2024. He goes on to argue, Stewart left The Daily Show in the early days of Donald Trump's presidential campaign when 
when the whole idea still seemed like a joke. Replaying the footage of Trump's descending an escalator to announce his candidacy seemed to provide Stewart as much delight as any running gag in his time hosting. He likely couldn't have imagined what would happen in the 2016 election, never mind what was to come over the next four years, where the sheer tonnage of falsehoods being proudly uttered in the White House could have allowed The Daily Show to expand each episode to three hours without running out of material. But even amidst all that mendaciousness, the push toward racism and fascism or the sheer incompetence displayed by so many people in so many important positions affecting the lives of every American, Stewart was still sticking with the same both sides are equally bad approach, which was on display again in Irresistible, the toothless 2020 political satire he directed. Now, I have not seen Irresistible. In fact, I don't think I've ever even heard of it. But regardless, what this person is saying is, look, he's both sides in this situation, right? We have Joe Biden and we have Donald Trump. One is a fascist and one is a pretty standard establishment politician. So when you have these two options, why would you both sides the situation? And that's not necessarily what John Stewart is doing, right? He's not saying they're both equally bad. He's saying what we're all thinking and what we can all see. They are both very old men in cognitive decline, and Biden should have retired as should Donald Trump, but they're both very, very selfish. I mean, this is not what John Stewart is saying, but I mean, he's kind of implying this with his commentary. But Rolling Stone was not alone because other liberals online echo the same exact sentiment. For example, Aaron Rupar writes, John Stewart still has it in terms of being funny and entertaining, but the political content of this monologue is basically the New York Times op-ed page in TV form. Both sides are not, in fact, equally bad. That's not what he's saying, but he continues, on one hand, we have an old president who has skillfully led the country through a difficult period that's debatable. On the other hand, we have an also old aspiring dictator who is largely largely responsible for said difficult period. Both candidates are challenged. Keith Olbermann chimed in saying, well, after nine years away, there's nothing else to say to the both sidesist fraud John Stewart bashing Biden, except please make it another nine years. Predictably unhinged response from Keith Olbermann here. This person says John Stewart is no longer up to the task. He is incapable of an original idea, relied on lazy tropes that appealed more to the white dude bro demographic, and most importantly, has joined the DC press corps in their ability to see the forest for the trees a fail i guess you're supposed to just be a propagandist for joe biden i mean i don't know what else this person expects uh this person adds i'm calling bullshit on john stewart it's funny how he didn't have a problem with age when it came to bernie sanders who's even older than president biden how can you say an 81 year old man can't run this country when biden is 81 and running it very well well first and foremost that's debatable second of all nobody was questioning bernie sanders mental acuity man i mean these are very different people we're talking about here. Twitter user Thembo shared a couple of other examples here. This person says John Stewart is 20 years younger than Joe Biden, but they look the same age. I'm just adding that to the discourse. Um, that's no, I'm sorry, don't agree. 61-year-old John Stewart looked and sounded so tired and old, repeating tired old material from almost a decade ago. Definitely past his prime. Incredibly sad. This is more of a no-you response to John Stewart telling Joe Biden that he's old. John Stewart complaining that 2024 is two old guys again is like me complaining that it's two white guys again. It misses the point and minimizes the stakes. And those were just a couple of examples. But I think that all of these responses to John Stewart kind of proves how badly we needed him again, right? We need this commentary now more than ever. And I'm sorry, but he's not minimizing the stakes by saying what is objectively true, what all of us can see with our own two eyes, right? You are the one missing the point. He's saying when the stakes are so high, you don't roll the dice with someone this unpopular and out of touch and old, right? As Nate Silver, of all people, put it, quote, you don't demonstrate your seriousness that Trump is an existential threat to democracy by going through the motions to renominate an 81-year-old with a 38% approval rating who 75% of voters think is too old without giving anyone a choice because that's just how things are done. And Nate Silver is absolutely correct, which is not something that I thought I would ever say. But He's just saying what everyone is thinking, right? And when Nate Silver can see it, but other liberals cannot, that's when you know they've lost the plot. That's when you know they've become too out of touch. We never should have renominated Biden, right? Going with him is so dangerous. It's like you're playing chicken with fascism by choosing the weakest possible candidate. Yes, he did defeat Trump the first time. I will be forever grateful to him for doing that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he can do it again. Things are different now. Times have changed. And he's not as strong as he was going into 2020. 
But that's where we're at. Biden chose to run again. The decision was his. Party leaders should have intervened and try to convince him to step down. But that didn't happen. So it's it's Biden, right? He's the only thing that stands between Trump and the White House. And that's really sad. It's a bleak situation. But we should be able to laugh at the bleak predicament that these elites put us in, right? We should be able to poke fun at them for doing this, for being so concerned about authoritarianism from Donald Trump, rightfully so, but then running the weakest candidate imaginable. Criticizing Biden is not tantamount to an endorsement of Donald Trump. If anything, Biden should be listening carefully to criticism to become a better candidate. But I understand the fear that liberals fear about the prospect of Trump becoming president again, because, I mean, he could very well end democracy. Like, I genuinely believe that that is a possibility. But that doesn't mean that we turn off our brains and force ourselves to pretend as if the alternative is good because Biden is not good. He's better than Trump and the bar is low, but nonetheless, he is still better than Donald Trump. But being better than Trump doesn't automatically make him good. And it worries me that so many liberals refuse to hear good faith criticism from the left about ways that Biden can improve. But listen, if you adopt the mentality where your party is above criticism and the party leader should not be criticized under any circumstances ever, you are no better than the MAGA cultists who worship Donald Trump. Objectivity matters. Being honest and truthful matters. And as Sawyer Hackett put it, if you have a problem with how Stewart presented the dynamics of this race, you have your head buried in the sand and haven't talked to a regular voter in three years. Exactly. And listen, we are all in a bubble in some way, right? But when you adopt the entire worldview of MSNBC pundits, you are no longer in touch with average Americans. Now, that's not to say that MSNBC pundits are equally as bad as Fox News pundits and that they have the same effect on older generations as Fox News pundits. But I mean, when you exclusively get your politics from cable news, you are not hearing a range of perspectives that you should be hearing. You're hearing from elitists with different interests than you whose ideas are filtered through an establishment-friendly pro-corporate lens. But getting back to Jon Stewart, his show very clearly had an impact on Washington, and I say this not only because of the discourse that took place after his first episode, but because the White House press secretary was literally asked about his criticism the following day. Is the president a fan of The Daily Show? Oh, I'm not expecting that. I, I would have to ask him. Did he watch Jon Stewart last night? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you did, Jeff. Was it good? Uh, he was pretty critical of the president oh, as really? well as the former president. And I guess my question is... He said this about President Biden. He was critical of both. Okay, got it. Oh, and you said as, as well as, as the well. former. I gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, just, and so my kind of follow-up to that yeah. more jokey question is, yeah. does, does the White House feel like it made the right decision putting President Biden out on Thursday night uh, to have the press conference that he did? And related to that, yeah. um, do you feel like the White House's response pushing back against the her report was as quick and as robust as you would have liked it to have I'm been. assuming this is responding to John or the Daily Show. Partly, yeah, okay. other okay. okay. as well. Okay. Um, so look, you, I think, and we believe the president went out on Thursday. On the day that the report came out, it was important, we believe, it was important for the, for the American people to hear directly from this president and to lay out in a very forceful way uh, what we thought about uh, about the special counsel report, what he thought about the special counsel report. And not only that, he took your questions. He stood there and took questions from all of you. I think that's important. Uh, it's important, he believed that's important to, to, have, to, to do. Uh, and then the next day, by the request of the White House Correspondent Association, which we obviously have a good relationship with and respect, uh, we we were asked to bring uh, to bring Ian Sams to the podium uh, from obviously the spokesperson from from the White House uh, Council, and he did and stood here for 45 minutes, uh, approximately, and took questions. Uh, and so I think we are going to do everything that we can, especially uh, as it related, obviously as it related uh, to the Special Counsel Report, which we believe. Uh, and let's not forget. It said there is no there there, right? It said that the, the, the case is closed. Uh, so let's, you know, that's what they said. There's nothing to prosecute, so we want to be really clear there. But we also, the president's going to stand and defend himself. Uh, the characterization, the way that report was characterized, was not, not just me saying this. Legal experts on both sides said it was flatly wrong. And it was gratuitous. Uh, and it was inappropriate. And so the president's going to defend himself. I mean, I expect Joe Biden to defend himself, obviously. But as Jon Stewart pointed out, he's not doing a great job at it, right? The people who are most concerned about his cognitive decline aren't being reassured 
the more that they hear Biden speak. He's not a very good advocate for himself at this point. Now, personally, I care more about policy than the age of the candidate. After all, I did vote for Bernie Sanders twice, who's actually older than Joe Biden. But to be fair, there was there wasn't this question about whether or not Bernie Sanders was in cognitive decline, but his age was still an issue for a lot of voters. And personally, I find it baffling that Trump wanting to become a dictator isn't more of a pressing matter to voters than Biden's cognitive decline, but voters don't agree. That's the reality. And Biden chose to run despite knowing that this would be a liability, that he would be a liability and this would be an issue. Right now, polls indicate that Voters are leaning more towards the fascist over the man that they think is senile. That is the reality of the situation. So to the extent that I'm personally concerned about Biden's mental acuity, it's purely from the standpoint of electability and whether or not that's going to hinder his ability to defeat Donald Trump. But in conclusion, Jon Stewart is right. And if we're unwilling to admit obvious truths, we've lost the plot. As many of you know by now, the most progressive members of Congress are all facing competitive primary challenges by well-funded opponents, and we now know that at least one of them is in serious danger of losing. That individual is Cori Bush. The New York Post reports, a new poll by GOP firm Remington Research finds Bush losing by 22 points to rival Wesley Bell in the August 6th contest. While the poll was a small sample size of just 401 voters, the results are stark. In the survey conducted last week, 50% of those polled said they were in favor of Bell, a former prosecutor, with just 28% saying yes to Bush. The margin of error was 4.9%. So obviously this is very alarming as somebody who supports Cori Bush, but there are a couple of caveats. As the article mentioned, the sample size was relatively small. And yes, this is a GOP pollster, but I mean, they are fairly reputable, not as reputable according to 538 as pollsters like ABC News and New York Times Siena College, and their transparency score is comparatively low. But I mean, they have produced relatively accurate results, and they're certainly more trustworthy than Rasmussen, which skews heavily towards Republicans. But I mean, this poll is the only gauge that we have at this point of this primary race. And I think we would be foolish to not take it seriously. And as Josh Krajnar of Jewish Insider and Fox News puts it, this is a big red flag for far left squad lawmakers. Now, as you can see, he's also framing her as being anti-Israel and is implying that her position there is the reason why she's in this predicament currently. Now, I think that him calling her far left is a stretch because even though it's easy to think that's the case when the Overton window in the United States is so far to the right that anyone who's left of center seems like a commie. But I mean, in actuality, even though she's one of the most left-wing members of Congress, that doesn't make her an extremist. She's just a social Democrat. There's nothing extreme about any of her policy positions. But I think that there is something to be said here about him saying that she's losing because of Israel. It's not because of her stance, because, I mean, what she's doing in calling for a ceasefire is the position that's supported by a majority of Americans, including a strong majority of Democrats. But the reason why her position has got her in this predicament is because of all the money being spent against her. And I think that he's also correct to point out that this isn't just a red flag for Cori Bush. It's also a red flag for other members of the squad as well, particularly Jamal Bowman and Elon Omar, who are also possibly in danger of losing, although we'll have to wait to see the polls. But I mean, this is really sad to see because she was bold and she chose to come out and do the right thing and call for a ceasefire. But now she is possibly going to be punished for it. Now, a couple of months ago, we learned that APAC is planning to spend more than $100 million to unseat progressives like Cori Bush, who called for a ceasefire and dared to criticize Israel. But before that, we learned this. Wesley Bell announced that he would be abandoning his campaign for the U.S. Senate against Republican Josh Hawley to instead run against fellow Democrat Cori Bush. And it seems like he made the right decision for himself for the fact that he managed to raise a lot of money in comparison to Cori Bush, whose campaign is reportedly in debt with just $20,000 of cash on hand. So run against the Republican with unlimited funds or run against a Democrat who exclusively is raising money through small grassroots donations to remain principled. Hmm, which one's going to be easier here? So he made the easy choice. Now, this primary challenge is about Israel, but Bell ironically, after choosing to get in this race because of her position on Israel, is desperately trying to not make this about Israel, 
But I mean, it makes sense if you think about it, because defending a genocide isn't necessarily the most effective strategy. So instead, what he's trying to do is portray her as a bad representative who I guess is not looking out for the interests of her constituents and is doing bad constituent services. I mean, it's so ridiculous that he would try to make this case, but this isn't what the election and the primary is about. This is about Israel, and he's only running against her because it'll be easier to fundraise against the progressive critical of Israel than it would be to fundraise against the Republican, right? So for him to try to pretend as if Israel isn't the number one issue here shows you how disingenuous he is, and Cory Bush is sounding the alarm about what this race is actually about despite his attempts to deflect. The New York Times reports, unlike many of the primary contests fueled by various groups, like the American Israel Political Affairs Committee, its political affiliate, the United Democracy Project, and the Independent Democratic Majority for Israel, the Bush v. Bell battle in Missouri's 1st District pits progressive against progressive, each with a considerable record to run on that has little to do with Israel. And though driven by money from pro-Israel groups and firm Israel critics, the fight over Missouri's deep blue 1st District is likely to hardly mention the Middle East. Instead, it will be a battle over representation and what that should look like for troubled St. Louis. Quote, I'm being targeted by a because not only do I believe Palestinians deserve to live freely and peacefully just like Israelis, but because I want to protect our democracy from Republican extremism, Ms. Bush said Monday. I want to codify abortion rights, I want to pass meaningful gun violence prevention legislation, and I want to raise taxes on billionaires. All things APAC, their GOP donors, and the insurrectionists they endorse oppose. And Cori Bush is exactly correct. This is about Israel, and I think that it would behoove her to at least point out why he's challenging her in the first place. But I mean, it's so infuriating to see Wesley Bell LARP as a progressive during the campaign. And he's only able to do this because he's able to control the narrative since he's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Even though Cori Bush is an incumbent with that incumbent advantage, he has so much money that he could flood the airwaves and get voters to think, whatever he wants them to think about this entire race. It's really it's really frustrating, but unfortunately, this is the way that U.S. politics works. But as much as he wants to downplay his support for genocide now, he already gave away the game in an October 31st interview with Jewish Insider. Quote, he said that the Israel-Hamas war and Bush's comments about it had factored into his decision to challenge her for her House seat. Quote, it contributed to my decision for the surface reasons that those comments were offensive on many levels, but also from a national security level as well, Bell said. But wait for it. Bell declined to say if he had been in conversation with AIPAC or Democratic Majority for Israel, the pro-Israel PAC's working to recruit challengers to squad members. But it gets even better. Quote, Bell, who traveled to Israel in 2017 with the American Israel Education Foundation, a nonprofit linked to APAC, said he'd seen firsthand the importance of Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Bush voted against supplemental Iron Dome funding in 2021 after the last war between Israel and Hamas. He is so dishonest, it's almost hilarious. Well, you know, yeah, I have this affiliation between APAC. I'm at least linked to them in a roundabout way, but I'm not going to tell you if uh, they're funding me after I literally decided to get in this race to challenge her because I know that the Israel lobby is going to be spending big to defeat progressives calling for a ceasefire. I mean, this is just, it's so comical how people can run for Congress and be so deceitful about their reasoning, right? I think that if you run for Congress, for opportunistic reasons like i don't expect you to say that but really we want people to run for congress for selfless reasons not selfish reasons right we want them to run because they actually care about people not because hey this is going to be easy because i could just jump in this race and automatically get like hundreds of thousands of dollars because the entire fucking israel lobby is against this person it's just it's so frustrating now the reason why cory bush rightfully voted against the funding of israel's iron dome is because they are overseeing a state of apartheid and that bill that she voted against had zero protections for palestinians but of of course, he didn't explain that because why would he? But he did use that vote to imply that she supports literal terrorists, which is something that Republicans have also done. Jewish Insider continues, in a press conference announcing his candidacy, Bell said, quote, we cannot give aid and comfort to terrorist organizations. Pressed on that comment by Jewish Insider, Bell noted that Bush had voted against funding for the Iron Dome missile defense system and said that the U.S.'s foes, including Hamas, pay attention to public divisions in the U.S. Quote, they want propaganda to try and create confusion and disinformation, he said. I think it matters a lot. And then obviously, 
have won votes. There are certain things that we cannot politicize, and that's one of them, in my opinion. And as we see, Republicans and Democrats like one of the few issues that we all come together on. Oh, so it's the squad who wants to propagandize the conflict and not his donors. I see. Makes total sense. And I love how he says that he is proud to come together with Republicans for this particular issue. Yeah, the same party who called for Gaza to be turned into a parking lot and to be wiped off the map. That's the party who you're proud to align with on this issue? Really? I mean, why not just join them? It's astonishing to me that he is pretending to be a progressive here. I mean, you can't be progressive and pro-genocide at the same time. But I guess if you have enough money, you can make think people think anything about you. It's just, right? Now, when he was confronted about this morally indefensible position by a non-Zionist Jewish woman, take a look at how he responded. I would like to first speak as a Jewish anti-Zionist, because I do think it is important that we make it known that not all Jews support the violence, the genocide, the ethnic cleansing of the state of Israel. So it, please just make sure that you do not treat all Jews as a monolith, as if all Jews support the ethno state of Israel, because we certainly do not. Um, that's that is number one. Um, but number two, when you talk about that, you don't want to be divisive. And clearly you are insinuating there you're implying that you believe cory bush is somehow divisive um you think somehow she's too divisive um i mean i think that a lot of people could have said the exact same thing about you when you ran for your current position and um based on that same that same mentality that it is quote unquote divisive to speak up for marginalized, oppressed, colonized people. A lot of people think that that is divisive. And so I think that's how that is going to be interpreted um, when you say that. As you have chosen this exact moment to run, while Cori Bush has been criticizing Israel's genocide, and you are saying that sometimes we do need to hold police officers account accountable when they use excessive force. But then I'm asked what I want to ask you is about this contradiction. When you say we need to always, always stand with our ally, Israel, you keep saying ally, but you don't say okay. Israel. I think, so I, why, think, I think we got the question now. Why? Can we not hold them accountable for their very, very excessive force of over 10,000, 11,000, 12,000, half of which are children are killed? So tell me why that is not the same thing, that we don't ever, ever, ever hold them accountable. Thank you for the question. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so first and foremost, um, I it, it is it's offensive to me that that um that you would cons you you would you would say that Israel defending itself is genocide. Genocide is the intention is intentionally trying to wipe out um, um, wipe out a people, and no reasonable person would say that that is that is um, Israel's intention. Israel was attacked. Um, Israel was attacked by Hamas, and let's let's just since since we're gonna since we're gonna put this out, and I'm not gonna take up the the entire uh, the, our entire time with this, but I do wanna I do wanna make this point. Israel was attacked by a, a terrorist organization who, in their charter, says that the destruction of Israel is their goal. That they mm -hmm. stated after this attack that they were going to do it again and again. Mm -hmm. They they contact they 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 attacked people at a concert. Those were not military targets. They and and so and, and to call this ethnic cleansing, it, it, it is just wrong. It is misguided. And her statements and your statements are wrong on that. Period. And so Wesley, did this begin no, 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 on no, no, no. 
I listened to everything that you said, Sally, and you. I listened to everything you said, and I did not interrupt you. And now it's my turn. No, Sally, we're not going to do this. I listened to your. I listened to your question, and now it's my turn to end. And now it's my turn to speak. And so here we are. We're talking about accusing folks who we know were victimized by by genocide and ethnic cleansing during the Holocaust and throughout history. And we're going to say that these that this country cannot defend itself against a terrorist organization that literally says they want to destroy Israel. No, I am not going to sit here and play these these word games and, and, and try to reinvent what actually is happening on the ground and what is actually happening historically. Did it start on October 7th, Wesley? Did all of this begin on October 7th? I'm not going to make this a back exactly. and forth yeah. with you. Of course, you're not. of course you're not. Yeah, I think that that exchange speaks for itself. Very, very telling in how he uh, just wouldn't answer the question directly. He won't engage honestly with the question because doing so would force him to acknowledge war crimes Israel has committed. And if he did that, his donors wouldn't be too happy. So he's dodging questions like Neo from the Matrix and trying desperately to make this about anything but Israel, even though that's the entire reason why he's in this race in the first place. What a dishonest hack. But you know what? Let's play the game that he wants to play. Let's actually put aside both of their positions on Israel for a moment and look at actual policy positions that both candidates support. When you go to Cori Bush's campaign website, you can see policy priorities. And when you click on one of them, like Medicare for All, for example, you can see thorough details about specific changes that she wants to make to our broken healthcare system. You can go to Housing for All and see a plethora of practical solutions to one of the biggest crises facing the country right now. On the other hand, when you go to Wesley Bell's page, you find um, no policies. Zero. In fact, he doesn't even have a policy page. And he's been in the race for months now. There is a page about him, but there's not a peep about what he wants to do for you if you live in that district. But yet he wants to make this about constituents and not the candidates. That's hilarious to me. I mean, the choice couldn't be more clear. And if voters in Missouri's first congressional district get tricked into voting for this vacuous shill, that would be incredibly sad for them because they'd be losing a representative who actually gives a damn about them. So I'm going to put the donation link to Cori Bush in the description box. And uh, if you live in this district and you support Cori Bush, do what you can to help her. Text bank, phone bank, canvas, because if she were to lose, that'd be a really sad day for America. Yesterday, the Chiefs beat the 49ers at the Super Bowl. Now, for those of you not in the know, like myself, let me put it in terms that you can understand. Taylor Swift's boyfriend's team won, which is relevant specifically for purposes of today's video. Now, in the lead up to the Super Bowl, there were these unhinged right-wing conspiracy theories about how Biden was somehow orchestrating this entire victory for the Chiefs in order to pave the way for Travis Kelce and Taylor Swift to endorse him. It's an incredibly goofy story. I did an entire video about it if you want to check that out. But Biden's team jokingly leaned into this conspiracy theory in a couple of ways. First, he referenced it in a TikTok video that his team released yesterday. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I understand she makes great chocolate chip cookies. Deviously plotting to rig the season so the Chiefs would make the Super Bowl or the Chiefs just being a good football team? You get in trouble if I told you. So, I mean... That's fun, right? He's taking a page out of John Fetterman's book and embracing silly conspiracy theories about him. But after the game was over, his social media team tweeted this dark Brandon meme with the caption, just like we drew it up. Now, in a vacuum, there's nothing wrong with this tweet. But unfortunately for him, as the president of the United States, this came off as extremely tone deaf for the fact that Israel, the government that he's funding and supplying weapons to, committed a massacre as that tweet went out, as the Super Bowl was taking place. And people were quick to point this out. For example, Owen Jones tweeted, Palestinians were picking up the body parts of their loved ones slaughtered by U.S.-supplied bombs when Biden's team posted this. Also, Jewish Voice for Peace tweeted, Tonight, the Israeli military carried out a devastating and deadly assault on Rafah, a safe zone where displaced Palestinians were sheltering. The attack was possible because Biden keeps sending weapons to a genocidal government. Meanwhile, he's doing this. Z-Squirrel writes, the genocidal Israeli regime that Genocide Joe is funding and arming is right now at this moment mass murdering, beheading, maiming Palestinian babies and children in Rafah. Body parts are strewn across streets and buildings, and this is what the White House decided to post. And there's more, but you get the point. 
Now he's clearly trying to appeal to young voters by being quirky. But I mean, the cutesy Mimi stuff just isn't going to land when you're funding and aiding a genocide. And even though it's obvious that he wasn't referencing Israel's massacre in Rafa with that tweet, his team should have read the room and just not released it, given the circumstances. Now, Biden has tried to placate people concerned by reportedly seething privately about Netanyahu. And from time to time, we'll get leaks such as the following. NBC News reports, Biden has said he is trying to get Israel to agree to a ceasefire, but Netanyahu is giving him hell and is impossible to deal with, said the people familiar with Biden's comments who all asked not to be named. Quote, he just feels like this is enough, one of the people said of the views expressed by Biden. It has to stop. Biden has in recent weeks spoken privately about Netanyahu, a leader he has known for decades, with a candor that has surprised some of those on the receiving end of his comments, people familiar with him said. His description of his dealings with Netanyahu are peppered with contemptuous references to Netanyahu as this guy, these people said. And in at least three recent instances, Biden has called Netanyahu an asshole according to three of the people directly familiar with his comments. Now, in theory, that sounds good to somebody who hasn't been paying close attention to this. These leaks try to paint Biden as a concerned but powerless president doing everything that he can behind the scenes to rein in Netanyahu. But the problem, as the title points out, is his administration hasn't significantly changed U.S. policy towards Israel and Gaza. And therein lies the problem. He actually thinks people are stupid enough to think that he's powerless in this situation when he's not. He is still supplying weapons to Israel. He is still supporting them. He is still using the United States' veto power on the Security Council to shield them from any accountability whatsoever, including just mere condemnations. And as a result, all these leaks do is demonstrate how insincere he is in his concern for Palestinians. And as Truanon put it, the purpose of these frequent leaks about Biden's frustration with Netanyahu is to provide some sort of cover for the Biden administration's full support, but it just makes him look even weaker and more pathetic. And Adam Johnson adds, the White House continues to use court stenographer reporters to launder an image of Biden somehow opposing mass death in Gaza, when in fact nothing has materially changed. These articles have been written dozens of times and are all sourced to self-serving anonymous White House officials. In other words, nobody's buying it. I'm not buying it. It's obvious what's going on here. But these leaks serve as damage control because the administration knows how unpopular this stance is with the Democratic Party's base. But it's just not helping. And if anything, it's hurting him because the people who are following this close enough to care, they find these reports insulting and downright patronizing. Another example is his announcement that he'd be sanctioning just four Israeli settlers before heading to Michigan to meet with Arab Americans. It's charitable to even call that the bare minimum. It's just embarrassing. And his attempt to control the narrative here has been a complete failure. Because, you know, you can't propagandize and gaslight when we can see what's happening with our very eyes. He knows what needs to be done and his decision to allow this to continue is a choice. Now, I've shared this article multiple times, but this paragraph is worth repeating again. As Shrita Parsi of The Nation reports, in 1982, President Ronald Reagan was disgusted by Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. He stopped the transfer of cluster munitions to Israel and told Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin in a phone call that this is a holocaust. Reagan demanded that Israel withdraw its troops from Lebanon. Begin caved. 20 minutes after their phone call, Begin ordered a halt on attacks. So what's Biden's excuse? The answer is he has none. We have a Democratic president that is now to the right of Ronald Reagan on Israel-Palestine. And I say this not just because of his policies now. I say this because at the time he criticized Reagan for doing the right thing. So this is why the timing of that tweet was so atrocious. Because as he's watching the Super Bowl comfortably and enjoying himself, Israel is making use of the weapons that he gave them at a time when Americans weren't paying attention. As this viral tweet put it, they bombed Rafa during the Super Bowl so no one would notice. This is a genocide. And this is a move that comes after Netanyahu promised safe passage to people there. Now you can see the desperation in this woman's face as she reacts to their bombing. And in Arabic, she's saying, why are they bombing us? They told us this was a safe zone. They told us to come here. So why are they bombing us? But Netanyahu predictably broke that 
that promise. Now, there was an effort to rescue hostages, but it came at an extreme cost to innocent Palestinians. The Washington Post reports the Israeli strikes that lit up the night in Gaza's southern city of Rafah on Monday sent pulses of fear through the 1.4 million Palestinians for whom that strip of land has become a shelter of last resort. Israel's army described the overnight attacks as cover for a special forces mission to rescue two elderly Israeli Argentine hostages. The operation succeeded, freeing Fernando Simon Marmon, 60, and Luis Har, 70. The human cost was massive. At least 67 people were killed throughout the city, the Gaza Health Ministry said. A video from a house in Rafah showed the body of a Palestinian girl, her legs shredded into ribbons of flesh. Other footage from the city showed a bleeding boy being carried away and four more children dead on hospital stretchers. 164 people have been killed and another 200 wounded across the Gaza Strip in the past 24 hours, according to the health ministry. The overnight operation in Rafah, a place that has largely been spared this widespread aerial attacks in other parts of the enclave, shocked a bone-tired population that has spent months on the move trying to outrun the bombs. Yeah. And I saw the image of the Palestinian girl that they referenced whose legs were shredded into flesh ribbons. And that's going to stay with me for a very long time. So many images have been burned into my mind, and it's really hard to not think about. And for those not keeping count, 12,300 children have been murdered by Israeli forces. And children now make up 43% of the death toll, meaning that Israel has killed more children than Hamas militants. And yet, just a handful of American politicians have had the courage to call for a ceasefire. It is so difficult to not feel hopeless when you see so much apathy from politicians in the face of unfathomable pain and suffering. The fact that they don't care enough or don't have the courage enough to just say ceasefire is just, it's really blackpilling, for lack of a better word. Now, we often focus on the children who lost their lives, but the ones who survive, they're going to be permanently changed as well. And this was stressed by the chair of the UN Human Rights Committee, Anne Skelton. No child should grow up in fear, pain and hunger. Yet today, no child in Gaza is free from fear, pain and hunger. In fact, they'll be considered lucky if they can even survive this war and have the chance to grow up. All children living in the Gaza Strip have lost their childhood. They are traumatized and will forever live with a permanent impact on their mental health. Yeah, and this is something that we often don't think about. You know, it's great that as many people as possible are able to survive, but the ones who do survive, they're never going to be the same. And this terrorism is being paid for by our tax dollars. So in conclusion, Biden's team needs to read the room and maybe avoid shitposting during a fucking genocide. He's not going to win over young voters by memeing his way back to the White House. People want the bloodshed to stop. And until it does, literally nothing else he does or says matters. Well, Republicans are in complete disarray today because they lost the special election in New York's third congressional district, which, as you all know, was the seat that belonged to George Santos. So Democrat Tom Suozzi won 53.9% to Republican Mazi Pillup, who got 46.1%. Now, Suozzi was originally the person who represented that district, but he gave up that seat in 2021 to run for governor, failed, and then that's what paved the way for George Santos. So this is a victory for Democrats in terms of numbers, but ultimately I think that Republicans are probably going to benefit from his win in the long run. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. But just in terms of Democrats' likelihood of taking back the House in November, this is a good sign in that regard. But what's funny is the reaction following this election, because uh, Republicans are now, I guess, kind of starting to regret expelling George Santos, and George Santos is taunting them in an admittedly hilarious way. So on Twitter, he tweeted out minus one and he added, hey, Americans, please thank these two gems for losing a seat in the House today. Now, here's the best part. 
So Semaphore obtained this text that he sent to a group of Republicans, which reads, I hope you guys are happy with this dismal performance and the $10 million your feudal bullshit cost the party. I look very much forward to seeing most of you lose due to your absolute hate-filled campaign to remove me from Congress arbitrarily. Oh, come on, man. Now go tell the Republican base what you fucking idiots did and good luck raising money next quarter. Now, as you can see, the only reply came from Andrew Garbarino, who wrote, sorry, new phone, who dis? Now, you've got to admit that is objectively hilarious. And we all know that George Santos is a petty person and he wanted this to happen. And I say this because he wasn't even supporting the Republican nominee. He's a Republican, but he wouldn't support the nominee. Now, here's why he claims he wouldn't support her. Right now, in my view and in the view of many conservatives, real conservatives here in the district, is there's two Democrats on the ballot and the option is do we get a Democrat or a Democrat Republican light version of a Democrat? And that's very concerning because the reality is if she wins, you add a Democrat seat to Congress that's going to caucus with Republicans, which is very concerning. And you're, of course, referring to the fact that she's still a registered Democrat. I asked her about that. She said the Democratic Party has left her. So are you going to support her? She is still the Republican candidate. Are you going to support her in this race? So I've made it very clear I'm not voting in the race for the simple fact that I will not bring myself to vote for a registered Democrat, period. Not not in this time and in the time that we're living in. It's just against what I believe in as far as politics go. Interesting. Now, I understand why he's claiming that she is a Democrat light. And it's because she's literally a registered Democrat. So it makes sense in that regard. But when it comes to policy... I mean, it's not like she isn't extreme enough for the GOP, but I think that the dynamic in this race was interesting because the Democrat was more of a Republican light. So if you had your reservations about Mozzie because she was still a registered Democrat, well, you also have another option in the Democrat who's pretty right wing. In fact, arguably Republican when it comes to policy. So it's to me, I feel like it comes down to pettiness, right? Like he just wa doesn't want to support her because if she won, she would be his replacement and it would be a dub for Republicans and kind of validate their decision to expel him. But that didn't happen and he didn't want it to happen because now he gets to kind of go on a victory lap and taunt his former GOP colleagues. Now, in the aftermath of this loss for Republicans, Jake Sherman of Punchbowl News reports a healthy round of finger pointing this morning among Republicans here on Capitol Hill this morning about NY3. So far, I've heard people say the Nassau County GOP machine is useless after supporting Pillip and Santos. People blame the leadership. People blame Pillip herself for hiding out and not raising enough cash. And he adds, oh, and many say that the House Republicans shouldn't have expelled Santos. And some Republicans are now publicly expressing regret about the party's decision to ultimately vote to expel him. For example, Republican Mike Collins tweeted, so who still thinks Republican helping Democrats kick out Santos was a good idea? Also, Matt Gates took a shot at any Republican who voted to expel Santos for blowing up the GOP majority. And furthermore, LGBTQ Nation reports, also this morning, Morning, House Republican Whip Steve Scalise reminded everyone on Fox News that he did not support expelling Santos from Congress last year. It was a tough loss last night, he said. Marjorie Green chimed in, quote, whatever you want to say about George Santos, I don't think he should have been expelled. And he was a great Republican vote, said Representative Marjorie Taylor Green. Green also said that Pillip was a horrible candidate and accused her of hating Donald Trump. So lots of coping and seething, and uh, you love to see it because whenever fascists take L's and cry about it, I think that's a victory for America. But when it comes to this strategy of her kind of straddling the fence and running away from Trump, maybe that did contribute to her loss. Maybe the GOP base was disillusioned. I don't think that it's an absurd argument to make considering the fact that the GOP's base is basically pro-MAGA, they are far-right fascists, and if you run away from him, you're basically running away from the ethos of the GOP party at this point in time, right? But having said that, though, I find it very... I don't, I don't know what the right word is because unprincipled doesn't do it justice because that would suggest that Republicans are principled in the first place. But for the Republicans to say, well, we should have kept him despite his criminality because he was another vote, it just kind of shows that they don't care about anything but politics. But for those who forgot... These are just some of the things that George Santos did. 23 charges in total. Embezzlement, wire fraud, money laundering, campaign finance violations. The list goes on. Yet Santos survived not one, but two attempts to expel him, with many members waiting for the House Ethics Committee before taking action. But when the ethics report was released, it was explosive. 
There were hotels and taxi bills from Las Vegas charged to his campaign, makeup at Sephora, Botox even, OnlyFans charged to the campaign too. OnlyFans is a subscription-based risque website, a website that Santos swore he had never heard of in March, four months after his purchases. I just discovered what OnlyFans was about three weeks ago. The damning report turned the tide against Santos in the House. This is bullying. And when it led to another expulsion vote, it was a landslide. Santos seemed relieved to reach an end of his saga in Congress. Tell me what this year has been like for you. Hell. 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 Hell in the most profound way. You did that to yourself, buddy. Nobody forced you to lie about literally every single aspect of your life and to commit crimes and to misuse your campaign funds. You did that. Take responsibility. But he's not going to. But I mean... These crimes, these alleged crimes, are very, very serious. Not as serious as Trump's crimes, of course, but nonetheless still serious. Now, for Republicans to vote on principle to expel him, I think that that's a good thing. The Republicans who did that for once deserve credit for being principled. But now they're thinking, oh, this kind of blew up in our face because we have one less vote. Maybe it was bad. They have no core beliefs. They don't care about the rule of law or the Constitution or the fact that he lied to his constituents. It's all just about political victories for them. And I understand it. Like, you know, you're you're a party, so winning is going to be your number one goal, right? But the whole point of politics, the reason why one in theory gets involved in politics in the first place is to try to improve people's lives. But this is just a game of numbers to them. This is just about making sure that Team Red is in power and that's it. And I find that so embarrassing, right? Now, I do want to get to Trump's response because he is, uh, he's blaming her refusal to kind of embrace him. He tweeted on Truth Social, Republicans just don't learn. But maybe she was still a Democrat? I have an almost 99% endorsement success rate in primaries and a very good number in the general elections as well. But just watch this very foolish woman, Mozzie Melissa Pillip, running in a race where she didn't endorse me and tried to straddle the fence when she would have easily won if she understood anything about modern day politics in America. MAGA, which is most of the Republican Party, stayed home. And it always will unless it is treated with the respect that it deserves. I stayed out of the race. I want to be loved. Give us a real candidate in the district for November. Swazi, I know him well, can be easily beaten. Now, of course, Trump is going to say that because it's an incredibly self-serving argument to say, hey, if you don't embrace me, you're going to lose. Hey, here's proof of that. So, I mean, it makes sense that he would say that. Having said that, though, I don't necessarily think that he's wrong because the modern day Republican Party is effectively a cult. So if you refuse to embrace the cult leader, the cult members are aren't going to be there to support you. Having said that, though, it's not just her refusal to embrace Trump that led to her demise. Republicans did other things to shoot themselves in the foot, and they're slowly but surely starting to realize that. And here's them grappling with the reality of their decisions in some interviews that Manu Raju did. If he was found guilty, then yeah, he should remove himself from Congress. And if he wouldn't remove himself, then the chamber would have a responsibility to do that. But to preempt that, to score political points, was stupid. A lot of Republicans here are already blaming you guys for pushing out George Santos. What do you say to them? There are a lot of decisions that have occurred these last couple of months that have shrunk the majority. Perhaps George Santos, being honest, would have kept one more seat here in Congress. Republicans have got to take advantage of early voting. We can't start so far behind. Trump is the one who has criticized early voting. I mean, is, are you guys still feeling the ramifications of all that? Well, I think the president understands what we're saying. There's a difference between mail ballots and in-person. And, you know, these are certainly conversations we'll have with the president. And that last comment coming from the House GOP's campaign chairman, Richard Hudson, who is part of that effort to try to get the Republican Mozzie Pillup across the finish line, indicating they are very concerned about the early voting, the lack of early voting among Republican voters costing them the election. Of course, that is a debate over campaign tactics that they may have to have with their party's potential and likely nominee Donald Trump, who has thrown cold water, of course, on mail-in voting, early voting and sorts. But that is one big reason why Republicans are concerned about their prospects in the future. So many issues here, John, about exactly what they need to do differently. But a lot of Republicans agree something needs to change ahead of November. So maybe we expelled Santos too soon. Maybe we shouldn't have told our base that mail-in voting is bad because it's not, and it makes it exponentially more convenient for them. So maybe they would 
likely show up for us if they had other options. There's a lot going on here, right? But I think that's part of it. Another issue is abortion. It's just been a loser for the GOP. And, you know, Democrats, for the most part, have been overperforming the polls. So I think that it's a good sign for Biden. And maybe this kind of demonstrates that even if he's behind a little bit, you can expect him to do better in certain states. We'll have to wait and see. I don't want to draw too many conclusions from this because it's just one district. But, you know, when you look at all of these victories that Democrats have been racking up, it does say that they've been overperforming. And I think that that has a lot to do with abortion and the GOP's refusal to embrace early voting and other methods of voting for their own base. Now, I do want to get to the candidates themselves because the dynamics of this race are incredibly bizarre. So first, let's start with Mozzie Pillow. This is a former paratrooper for the IDF. Per the Washington Post, quote, Pillup, 44, is a mother of seven children who was born in Ethiopia, immigrated to Israel, and served in the Israel Defense Forces before relocating to the United States. She has made supporting Israel and opposing illegal immigration key features of her campaign. Yeah, I find this mentality to be incredibly selfish and gross. She is an immigrant running on the demonization of other immigrants. Now, sure, she specifically says that she's against illegal immigration, which indicates that she's probably for legal immigration, which she would assume because she's an immigrant herself. The problem, though, is that the reason why we have so many illegal immigrants in the first place is because our immigration system is broken. But as an immigrant, she's saying, you know what? I don't care. I don't want to fix it. I just want to be more mean to immigrants in perpetuity and hope that they don't come. I want to close the door behind me and say, fuck all those other people. I got mine. They can stay out. I find that so gross. But here we are. Now, also, she is a former IDF soldier, which means you're probably not going to find someone more rah-rah genocide than that, right? Maybe with the exception of John Fetterman. But She's very, very pro-Israel. Now, you might be relieved after hearing, hearing this about her uh, to know that she lost until you learn about the Democrat who might actually literally be worse on all of these issues. The New York Times reports, Swazi's strategy went something like this. Challenge Republicans on issues that they usually monopolize like crime, taxes, and above all, immigration. Flash an independent streak and fire up the Democratic base with attacks. In this case, nearly $10 million in ads on the abortion issue and former President Donald J. Trump, the likely Republican nominee for the White House. On Wednesday, even House Speaker Mike Johnson acknowledged that Mr. Swazi's approach had broken through, though he downplayed the significance of the result. Quote, he sounded like a Republican talking about the border and immigration, Mr. Johnson told reporters in the Capitol, because everybody knows that's the top issue. So let's just pause right there. You have Mike Johnson, the Christian nationalist speaker of the House, saying this Democrat sounds like a Republican. And Democrats are like, We'll go with that guy. But guess what? It gets even worse. Because as The Intercept reports, Swazi is backed by the Democratic majority for Israel and is to the right of Joe Biden on the issue. They go on to explain, Swazi bucked President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party leaders when he announced his support for a White House Republican bill that would give additional assistance to Israel. Swazi's conservative backers argue that he has the best shot at winning back the district and helping Democrats regain seats they lost unexpectedly in 2022. Other Democrats, however, are worried that Swazi would vote with Republicans anyway. He has supported positions opposing abortion rights and flirted with conservative positions on issues like criminal justice reform, LGBTQ plus issues, and immigration. Swazi's campaign declined support from the left-leaning Working Families Party and sent out mailers picturing him with former New York Republican Representative Peter King. That's a losing strategy for Democrats in the long term, Bailey said. With the platform Swazi is running on, the Republicans will win even if they lose. So this is not a win for Democrats in actuality. It's a win on paper, but in actuality, when it comes to policies, which matters the most, this is a victory for Republicans. Now, sure, right now, since it's a campaign, he's saying that he supports abortion, but his history is a little bit damning, right? The fact that he's aligned with Republicans, not just on economic issues, but social issues, should scare Democrats. And this should scare everyone who is a left-leaning and even a liberal voter, because think about how quickly the Democratic Party is shifting to the right on so many issues. Immigration, Israel. I mean, thankfully, there are people now pushing back, but we have a president in Biden who is to the right of Ronald Reagan when it comes to his position on Israel and sending them weapons. So this is horrifying. And the message that Democrats are going to get from this is we win when we run to the right, when we out-Republican the Republican, which is worrying to me. But to give you a little bit of hope, 
you know, Swazi got the uh, the genocide supporter treatment. So at his victory speech, he was literally protested by ceasefire protesters. You love to see it. That is the treatment that every single supporter of genocide should be given so long as they're in a position of power to do something and don't. But at the end of the day, I mean, I guess you can chalk this up to a win for Democrats, at least on paper, right? The blue team has another number, which in theory is good for them retaking the House. But long term, this is more of a victory for Republicans, even if nobody's really acknowledging that now or saying that right now. Because he's going to side with Republicans on a lot of policies, if not most policies. This is another Henry Cuellar, so don't get too excited if you're a progressive, right? Uh, but with that being said, I'm still happy that we got this outcome specifically because of how funny it's turning out to be. The fact that it caused so much infighting and disarray within the GOP makes this uh, very, very funny. So, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, even if Mozzie Pillip would have won policy-wise— I mean, they're both kind of just going to be a vote for the GOP, so it doesn't necessarily matter that much. So the fact that we got an outcome that led to so much infighting within the GOP, I guess, makes this worthwhile and I guess is cause for celebration. But at the end of the day, you know, this is not really a win for anyone in particular, except for like just aesthetically speaking, Democrats got another seat. Great. That's a good indication that maybe Biden isn't as bad as the polls say he's doing still. I mean, nobody should be celebrating this because Swazi is not a good guy. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.